Matthew chapter 16, starting at verse 13, says this. Now when Jesus came into the district of Caesarea Philippi, he asked the disciples, Who do people say that the Son of Man is? And they said, Some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, and others Jeremiah or one of the prophets. He said to them, But who do you say that I am? Simon Peter replied, You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. Jesus answered him, Blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. And I tell you, you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven, and whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven. Whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Then he strictly charged the disciples to tell no one that he was the Christ. From that time, Jesus began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders and chief priests and scribes, and be killed, and on the third day be raised. Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him, saying, Far be it from you, Lord, this shall never happen to you. But he turned and said to Peter, Get behind me, Satan. You are a hindrance to me, for you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. So I have a little quiz for you, okay? First question, do you like... Coke or Pepsi? Who likes Coke? Okay. Who likes Pepsi? Okay. Pretty even. Next question. Do you like peas or broccoli? Who likes peas? Who likes broccoli? Wow. Lots of people like broccoli. All right. Would you rather pursue your passion... Or be stuck in a nine-to-five job? Who would like to pursue their passion? Okay, just about everybody. Who would like to be stuck in a nine-to-five job? Tom would. Congratulations, Tom. <laughs> Do you like McDonald's or Chick-fil-A? Who likes McDonald's? All right. Who likes Chick-fil-A? All right. Lots of people like Chick-fil-A. Um, Let's see. I think that's it. So there's one thing that kind of ties all those questions together, and that's that all those questions were logical fallacies. Um, and particularly, they were called false dilemmas. Uh, a false dilemma is, is described as a fallacy that misrepresents an issue by presenting only two mutually exclusive options rather than the full nuanced range of options. In other words, it gives you less choices than you really have. So when I said, do you like Coke or Pepsi, um, it assumes that you like one or the other. And, and some people might not like soda pop at all. Uh, some people might like Dr. Pepper. Some people like Mountain Dew. But the question assumes that you must like one or the other. Also kind of assumed in the question is that like, you have to like one or the other. Like you can't like both equally. And some people like Coke and Pepsi the same. The question, would you like to, to, to pursue your passion or be stuck in a 9-to-5 job, the assumption is that in there is that if you have a 9-to-5 job, you can't pursue your passion. And of course you can. There's many people that have 9-to-5 jobs that pursue what's important to them, what they're passionate about. So they're false dilemmas. They kind of limit the options to make us think that there's only a few options. And uh, Politicians do this all the time, and the political world is filled with false, uh, false dilemmas. Uh, so someone might say, well, are you a Republican? And you say, no. Well, you must be a Democrat then. No. 
You, it, you don't have to fit into those two categories. You could be independent or some, you know, smaller party. You don't have to fit into those categories, but there's this false dilemma. You have to be one or the other. Um, you know, people who are Republicans might say, well, you have to support, you know, you have to be against gun control or you don't support freedom. Uh, Democrats would say, well, you have to be for gun control or you're supporting violence. And, you know, they're like false dilemmas, both of those things. It's like they're not mutually exclusive. And yet, you know, politicians use these things all the time. During the COVID pandemic, uh, there was this false dilemma of, of like, you, you have to either protect the economy or protect people's health. It's like you have to do one or the other. You can't do both. They're two you know, different choices. And I think morally, sometimes we have these kind of false dilemmas as well. Sometimes we you know, label people, and we label people good or bad, and, and culturally, our opinion of people can change very rapidly. It's like you could have someone who has done a lot of good things, a humanitarian, and, you know, just has a great career, you know, and then they say something that's maybe questionable or controversial, or somebody finds, like, a video of them from, like, 30 years ago, or some picture, or whatnot, and then all of a sudden, the public perception changes, and it's like, oh, they're really bad. We thought they were good, but they're really bad. You know, and this one little thing can change their perception, our perception of people. You know, people are doing that now with, like, you know, monuments of people um, who are, you know, in our nation's past who did some good things, but then, you know, it's discovered they did some bad things as well. And sometimes people are like, you know, we should kind of tear that, that, that statue down because they did some things that were not so good. It's like we thought they were good, but they really are bad. And so our culture perception of people can change very rapidly. Uh, I think about, you know, last year, I believe it was, uh, the Buffalo Bills punter Matt Ariza, uh, one of the really amazing punter, the Bills drafted pretty highly, um, did amazing in the preseason. He's kind of just kind of um, reached his goal of making it to the NFL, making an NFL team. Um, and then there's a these accusations that are brought forward um, that he was involved in the sexual assault, and people's perception of him changed. It's like, oh, he's a bad guy. Buffalo Bills cut him, nobody else wanted to sign him. All the while it was discovered uh, a few months ago that uh, there was you know, irrefutable evidence that he wasn't even in the location where this alleged assault happened. Couldn't have even committed this crime. And yet people's perceptions changed. It was like we thought he was good, but really he's a bad guy. Happens with you know, pastors, ministry leaders all the time. It's like, you know, especially like you know, well-known uh, pastors, ministry leaders who are very charismatic, great speakers, have an amazing following, and it's like people are telling them, oh, this guy, he is amazing, he's close to God, he's walking with God, and, and then he does something terrible, and then people's perception change, and it's like, oh, he's really a fraud, he's really a bad guy. Like, we thought he was good, we thought he was up here, and really, he's bad. And so people's perception can change pretty quickly. And when we think about this perception of, uh, of this person is good or this person is bad, I don't know that it's really that helpful. Uh, certainly there are, you know, are righteous people who sincerely seek God, and then there are wicked people who don't, who don't care about what God says and just kind of do their own thing. Certainly there, there's moral categories, but really if we were going to label people good or bad, we'd all be labeled bad. Uh, it would be bad and badder. Like there... There's no 
distinction between good people and bad people. The Bible says we've all sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. And so categorizing people as like, oh, this is a good person. He does good things. This is a bad person. He does bad things. It's not always helpful. And you think about the scriptures and you think about our heroes of the faith. And the heroes of the faith today would be canceled. You think about Abraham. He was timid. He was a fraud. He lied to Pharaoh, said that, um, that Sarah was his sister. He was afraid, and he was a fraud. He disgraced the name of God in that. Moses would have been canceled for being a poor speaker, being moody, having emotional outbursts, not finishing the course, not bringing the people to the promised land. He failed in his ultimate goal, so to speak. Gideon would be canceled for being a coward. David, of course, would be canceled for murder and adultery. Paul would be canceled because there's just too much in his past. He's done too many things that were wrong. There's too many things that people could bring up that might be offensive. And in this passage that we're looking at today, we encounter a person who I think gives hope to all of us. Because if anyone should have been canceled, it was Peter. If anyone should have been canceled, it was Peter. Because we see in him, though he's sincere in his desire to serve God, and he does some amazing things, he's going to fall short in some really significant ways. And I think as we look at this story, it's an encouragement to all of us. At this place in Jesus' ministry, he's reached kind of the most northerly place in in his ministry. So he's up in Caesarea Philippi, uh, which at this point is a very pagan city. And so he's reached this place, and it's kind of a turning point in the book of Matthew And that now he's going to kind of turn from going north and he's going to turn back and he's going to head south, eventually get to Judea and to Jerusalem where he's going to be put to death. And now we look at the story of, you know, the the gospel of Matthew and to read the gospel of Matthew, it's pretty clear that Jesus is the Messiah, he is the Son of God. But remember, um, Matthew is very selective in what he includes for us and that is his goal. He wants to sh- us to see that Jesus is the promised Messiah. He is the King of Kings. And so we have a very selective record of what Jesus did and Matthew does that intentionally to show us like this is who he is. Like this is what he did. This is who he is. But Jesus' disciples didn't have a clear picture of that and the people who observed Jesus' ministry didn't have a clear uh, picture of that. And Jesus at this point wasn't just going around saying, hey, uh, I'm the Messiah, I'm the anointed one. You know, he gives hints to that fact, but he's fulfilling a ministry and he hasn't ready for that to be fully revealed yet. And that's why it says in the text, he strictly charged the disciples not to tell anyone. And so there's this ambiguity. Yes, Jesus does some amazing things, but he isn't 100% clear that he's the Messiah at this point. And so Jesus, at this pivotal moment in his ministry, about to head back to uh, back, back south to Judea, Jerusalem, to fulfill the ministry God has to, to die on the cross and rise again, he asks the disciples a question, so who do people say that I am? Who do people say that I am? And they respond, and they say, well, some say John the Baptist. Some say uh, Elijah. Some say Jeremiah. Um, That's an interesting one. We're not sure exactly why they thought he was Jeremiah, but some people apparently did. Um, Some say other prophets. And what ties all of them together is Jesus is just a prophet. He's a miracle worker. He does things on behalf of God. But that's kind of it. And so then Jesus says, well, okay, that's what the crowds say. What What do you think? Who do you say that I am? And Peter speaks up, and we don't know if he's speaking just for himself or for kind of the group, kind of the group spokesman. 
But he speaks up and gives this amazing pronouncement. And he says, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. In other words, you are the anointed one. You are the Messiah. And Peter doesn't have to describe him as the living God, but he does so to kind of illustrate the fact that he's the same God as the God of the Old Testament, that he's a God who's alive and moving and working in the affairs of men. It's an amazing statement of faith, an amazing understanding that Peter has at this moment. And uh, Jesus commends him for this. He gives this incredible uh, commendation. He says, blessed are you, Simon Barjoni. He talks about the fact that the Father has revealed that to him. And then he goes on to name him. Jesus says, okay, you've named me, so to speak. You say, I am the Messiah. I am the one who is to come, the, the, the son of the living God. Okay, you've named me this. Now I'm going to name you, and I'm going to name you Peter. Now when we think about the name Peter, it's a common name. We've probably met several people throughout our life who's named Peter or Pete. But in that day and age, it wasn't a name. Peter wasn't a name. It's virtually unknown as a name in the scriptures. It was an object. It was stone, rock. It's like George Costanza in Seinfeld who wants to call his son Seven, Seven Costanza. It's not a name. It's an object. And yet Jesus calls him Peter to illustrate the important role that he's going to have in the early church, that he's going to be uh, this foundation stone. And he eventually calls the other disciples uh, stones as well. But Peter is going to have this incredible and important and pivotal role that was unique to him. Now, sometimes uh, you know, Roman Catholics will look at this passage and, and give it as kind of evidence for uh, the fact that you know, Peter was the first pope, so to speak, they say, and you know, evidence for the papacy because uh, Peter holds the keys to the kingdom of God and, and he can bind and loose things. Um, but I don't think that's the case at all. When we look at this passage, when it says that, G that Peter holds the keys to the kingdom of God, you know, sometimes people think of like Peter kind of standing at the pearly gates deciding who gets in. And I don't think that's scriptural at all. Jesus is the one who decides that. The Father decides that. But Peter holds the keys to the kingdom in that he holds the keys to the storehouse. And there's some Old Testament background for that. He holds the keys to the storehouse, so he's responsible for the administrative task of kind of providing provisions for the early church. When it talked about loosing and binding things, uh, often rabbis would talk about loosing and binding things as um, kind of deciding what was right and what was wrong, discerning what was appropriate and what was not appropriate. And so I believe what Jesus is saying here is that Peter has this integral role in the early church where he's going to, to, to kind of have this administrative function where he's going to be kind of the first among equals among the disciples, and he's going to help decide what's right and wrong. Uh, he's going to you know, arbitrate between disputes. He's going to correct people uh, when they go astray. And so he's going to have this important role as the church is, is in its infancy and forming into the people that God wants them to be. And, uh, you know, even this, it, you know, he's not kind of working by himself. He's carrying out the purposes of God. And he says, um, when it says that he will buy, it says that what he binds will be bound in heaven and what he loses will be loose in heaven. Uh, the term for being bound in heaven or loosed in heaven uh, is actually a future perfect. A more literal trans way to translate it is this. Whatever you bind on earth shall have already been bound in heaven. Whatever you loose on earth shall have already been bound in heaven. 
And so what is implied there is that Peter is not just making pronouncements. He's not you know, giving these decrees and saying, this is what is right. He's speaking and working on behalf of God, serving as kind of his, God's administrative assistant, so to speak, in organizing the early church and providing leadership for the early church. So that's just an aside kind of about this role and how sometimes it's used. But what's clear is Peter's going to have this incredible role in the early church. He's going to be a rock, so to speak, kind of a foundation, a key piece of the early church. And we see that he is in the book of Acts. He does incredible things, has an incredible ministry. And so he makes these statements, and Jesus says, in essence, you're the man. You're the rock. You've got it together. This is incredible what you're saying. And then Jesus goes on, and he starts to tell a little bit about what he's going to do. Okay, the Paul or, or Peter has de- declared he's the Messiah, and Jesus is like, okay, this is what the Messiah is going to do. And he talks about the fact that he's going to go to Jerusalem, he's going to suffer many things, and he's going to die. Now, this would have been surprising. This might have been shocking to the disciples. They thought that he was going to be a Messiah who triumphed. That, you know, in Scripture, in the Old Testament, there's hints that the, the Messiah would suffer, but there was all, there's also a lot of things that talk about the Messiah being one who triumphs over his enemies. And so they're thinking, you know, he's not going to suffer, he's not going to die. So they're shocked by this. And so Peter, the rock, decides he's going to take uh, Jesus aside and he's going to rebuke him. Think about that, rebuking the Son of God. Now we get a little bit of what Peter says in this passage, and it's described here, uh, but he probably said a lot more than that. He's probably like, Jesus, what are you talking about? I mean, I just gave you this, this incredible affirmation that you are the Messiah, you are the Son of the living God. The Son of the living God does not die. The Son of the living God is alive and well. The Son of the living God is one who triumphs. Surely this isn't going to happen to you. And then Jesus makes one of the most cutting and wounding statements in all of Scripture. He says, get behind me, Satan. Wow. You go from, Peter, you are the rock. You're the man. You understand this. I'm going to use you in this incredible way to get behind me, Satan. It's an incredible turn of events. And I think what it shows us is that rocks can sometimes become stumbling blocks. Rocks can sometimes become stumbling blocks. Why does Jesus say this to him? I don't think that Jesus was literally calling him a name that like, oh, you're the devil. But I think what he's saying is that you're acting kind of like the devil. You're kind of carrying out his ministry, so to speak. You know, we think about the temptations that Jesus experienced, and we know that Jesus faced temptation just like all of us, the normal temptations of life. But he also had one unique temptation, I think that was probably the most strong, though he never gave in to it. And that was the temptation to forsake the plan of God. I mean, think about it. He had all power in his hands. At any moment, he could have called down 10,000 angels. At any moment, he could have walked away from the cross. And we see that when uh, Satan tempts Jesus in the wilderness, the fundamental temptation is forsake the plan of God. Take matters into your own hands. Take the easy way out. And so here in this moment, Peter is saying to Jesus, You don't have to suffer. You can just triumph. You don't have to go to the cross. That's not what the Messiah does. And in doing so, he's acting in sense on behalf of Satan that he's tempting Jesus 
to not fulfill his ministry, to take the easy way out. See, Peter isn't, this isn't the only time Peter's going to do something like this. We see just a short time later, he's going to become a stumbling block in that um, the religious leaders are going to come and arrest Jesus. And he takes out his sword, cuts off the servant of the high priest's ear. And he wasn't just fighting them. In essence, he was fighting God. Because he knew that the Messiah had to suffer. He knew that Jesus had to die, and yet he didn't want it to happen. And so he's fighting against the plan of God. Jesus tells Peter, you can become a stumbling box. You're becoming a hindrance to me when you focus on the things of man rather than the things of God. Shortly thereafter, he's going to deny even knowing that. You know, imagine the testimony that he gives to those people that he, he was interacting with. The servants of the high priests. That he, he claims he doesn't even know Jesus. Even after the resurrection, there's times when he's going to be a stumbling block. Uh, in Galatians chapter 2, Paul talks about a, a time when uh, Peter's going to act hypocritically. He's going to eat with Gentiles sometimes and not eat with Gentiles for the sake of appearances. And he's going to cause people to stumble. Sometimes rocks can become stumbling blocks when they fix their eyes on things of man rather than the things of God. Matt Woodley, an author and pastor, shares a story about how he had a friend named Emilio who had a pizza shop in Long Island. And um, this, this, this owner of the pizza shop, Emilio, was really opposed to Christianity and had seen a lot of hypocrisy in the church and was opposed to to ministry leaders, and he had this kind of wall of shame. And over his pizza oven, he would take clippings of, of different pastors who were embroiled in these scandals, and he would just kind of put them up there. And every time Woodley would come in for some pizza, he'd bring out one of those articles and say, hey, look at this guy. He, wa he walked away with $80,000 stolen. Look at this guy. He, you know, claimed to be faithful, and he, he had an affair with three members of his church. Every time he would go in, and finally Woodley got to a point where he's like, like, what difference does it make? Like, there's bad apples, you know, in every profession. There's probably some bad pizza people. And so after that, he went and he tried to find articles of pizza people who did some bad things. Like, maybe they spit in the dough or, you know, used poor products or did terrible things. He couldn't really find anybody because nobody really cares if a pizza person does something wrong or not. But he describes what happened this way. He said, finally, after a month or two of bickering back and forth, I came to Emilio and said, I need to order two slices of cheese, and I need to ask your forgiveness. He bristled and shot back, is this a joke or a trick? No, really, Emilio. I'm truly sorry for being a jerk and for arguing with you. And I want the cheese slices, too. The truth is that ministers do screw up. We can be pretty decent people, but sometimes we're frauds and hypocrites. Sometimes I'm a sham. Emilio immediately softened, and we've actually become friends. He says, but I didn't say this is an evangelism strategy. I said it because it's true, and it's the gospel. He says, I love the line that summarizes the gospel this way. We are more flawed than we'd ever dare to admit. We're more loved than we'd ever dare to imagine. He said, I'm not sure why it's so hard to get this simple truth. I qualify for the cosmic rack of shame but through God's infinite mercy, Jesus took my place on the rack and set me free. 
Emilio, my outraged, anti-clerical, unchurched, pizza-making friend, helped me see the gospel again. I guess he evangelized me. I guess I have to be more careful. Jesus keeps sneaking up on me. I never know where he'll pop up next. Sometimes we get to a place in our Christian life where we feel like we've arrived. We feel like we have it all together. Feel like, you know, we're never qualified for that rack of shame, that we have it all together. But the gospel tells us that all of us have sinned, all of us have fallen short of the glory of God. We're all guilty before God. And the hope of the gospel that we sang about just a few minutes ago is the fact that it is finished, that our debt is paid, that Christ's righteousness is ours. And of course, when when Christ comes into our life, he changes us, he makes us new. He starts to form us into the image of his son. And so God, God changes us, and there's no doubt about that. But we still have a sin nature. We're still capable of great sin. We're still capable of becoming stumbling blocks if we're not careful. If we fix our eyes on the things of man rather than the things of God. And even Peter, this rock of the early church, this incredible figure who did some, so much for the good of Christ... Even he could become a hindrance, a stumbling block. Of course, there's some who, alleged Christians who are wolves in sheep's clothing. We're not talking about those people, hypocrites who don't care about following Christ. But even sincere believers, people you might call rocks, can stumble. Maybe at one time they've said, well, I would never do fill in the blank. But they start focusing on the things of God, making little compromises Maybe being focused on money or power or prestige, whatever the case may be, and they end up falling, becoming stumbling blocks. And it's a danger, a warning for all of us. 1 Corinthians 10, 12 says, Therefore, let anyone who thinks that he stands take heed lest he fall. Yet I don't think that's the end of the story. Yes, rocks can become stumbling blocks. But the good news is that Jesus makes stumbling blocks into rocks. Jesus makes stumbling blocks in the rocks. Consider what Jesus says here. He says, you are Peter. You are the rock. You are the man. Jesus knows what he's going to do. Jesus knows that he's going to fight the plan of God. Jesus knows that he's going to be terrified after Jesus is crucified. Jesus knows that he's going to doubt. Jesus knows that he's going to deny him. Jesus knows that at some points in the early church he's going to make some mistakes. He's going to be a hindrance. But Jesus still says, you're the rock. It's not because of who he was, it was because who Jesus was making him to be. Jesus doesn't look at us and say, hey, you are so amazing, you are so great. I'm so privileged that I get to use you. No, he looks at us, he sees the depths of our hearts, he sees the sinfulness, and he says, I can use you. I can make you into a rock. I can make you someone who can build up the body of Christ rather than tear it down. Yeah, I know you've got some flaws. I know that you're going to make mistakes, but I can use you. And that's what Jesus does with Peter. Despite his failings, despite all these reasons that he should be canceled, Jesus chooses to use him in the early church in incredible ways. And I can't imagine what the church would look like without Peter as an integral part of that early church. I think each and every day we have a choice whether we're going to be stones, rocks that build up other people 
or whether we're going to become stumbling blocks. And really the key is not, you know, just our behavior, it's where we're focused on. When we're focused on the things of this earth, when we're focused on earthly things, we're going to fall, we're going to stumble. But when we're focused on Christ, when we lean into Him, when we lead into His righteousness, God can use us in incredible ways to build other people up. Eugene Peterson puts it this way, when you look at our history, it's no wonder that spirituality is so treated with suspicion and not infrequently with outright hostility. For in actual practice, spirituality very often develops into neuroses, degenerates into selfishness, becomes pretentious, turns violent. How does this happen? The short answer is that it happens when we step outside the gospel story and take ourselves as the basic and authoritative text for our spirituality. We begin exegeting ourselves as a sacred text. True Christianity, true spirituality, takes attention off of ourselves and focuses it on another, Jesus. Science correspondent Robert Colwich from NPR did this study where he, he uh, did, found evidence that people can't actually walk in a straight line. He found studies of, uh, that were done where participants were put, their blindfold was put on them, and they were asked to just walk in a straight line for an hour. They would start walking, and all of them thought they were walking in a straight line, but then when they opened up their eyes, they realized they were zigzagging nowhere near a straight line. And for whatever reason, human beings are not able to walk in a straight line. He observes this. He says, this tendency has been studied now for at least a century. We animated field tests from the 1920s so you can literally see what happens to men who are blindfolded and, and told to walk across a field in a straight line or swim across a lake in a straight line. And they couldn't. In the animation, you see them going in these strange loop-de-loops in either direction. Apparently, there's a profound inability in humans to walk straight. He says, according to this research, there's only one way we can walk in a straight line. By focusing on something ahead of us, like a building, a landmark, or a mountain. If we can fix our eyes on something ahead of us, we can make ourselves avoid our normal crooked course. He concludes this, without external cues, there's apparently something in us that makes us turn from a straight path. Rocks can become stumbling blocks, but Jesus turns stumbling blocks into rocks. And as believers in Christ, he calls us to fix our eyes on him, the author and perfecter of our faith. When we fix our eyes on this, the things of this earth, we're going we're gonna to go off the path. We're going to fall. We're going to sometimes bring other people with us. But when we fix our eyes on Christ... When we lean into his righteousness, when we allow him to transform us, God can use us in incredible ways. And so the question before us is, are we going to allow him to use us? Are we going to focus on him? Or are we going to stray from the path? Truth is, we're going to, sometimes we will stray from the path. Despite our sincere efforts, despite our focus on Christ, there'll be times when we turn aside. The truth is, just like he welcomed Peter and reinstated Peter, he welcomes us back. We can turn, we can repent, turn back to him, and he can continue to use us. Let's pray. Dear Jesus, we thank you for your incredible grace. We thank you for examples in Scripture that we see people who are like us. Unlike other literature that 
portrays heroes of the faith as flawless and perfect. You show us what it means to be human, what it, lives, what it means to live life as sinners who are seeking you. Thank you for the examples that you give us in Scripture. Thank you for this example of Peter who, used, who you used in incredible ways, even despite the fact that he sometimes became a stumbling block. Lord, as people of faith, Lord, help us to fix our eyes on you. Use us, Lord, to build one another up, to build up your church. May there be nothing in our life that causes other people to stumble. May we not turn and look to the things of this earth, but that our focus and gaze would be on you. And when we fail, we know that you accept us back, that we can repent, we can turn from the direction that we're going, and we can continue to be changed and used for your glory. We thank you for your incredible matchless grace. In Christ's name I pray.